0: The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and we've just been there for a week, and we got a lot more weeks to go. But we summarized Mark as the servant on the mission. He is the servant, the Savior, and he's on a mission. And today's title from the opening verses is this. The Gospel Genesis, the beginning of the Gospel, Jesus Christ enters the public stage. Now, I find it very interesting that Dr. Wearsby entitled his commentary on Mark, Be Diligent. Diligent. And part of that is because Mark writes with great enthusiasm and he writes with a lot of energy as he describes Jesus Christ. This is the first biography that was written down to describe the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, Mark, as we said last week, probably consulted with Peter. He was an eyewitness to the events of the last week, which he gives a lot of uh, room to describe. And, um, and and his text is reliable. What he, what he gives us is very reliable. But it's all about diligence. So... Um, Proverbs, we studied Proverbs a bit, and the sluggard's appetite is never fulfilled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. And I just want to say, Jesus Christ is fully satisfied. Amen. He was both diligent in his life, very intentional, but he's also fully satisfied. And part of his satisfaction is you it's me, it's, it's Eduardo, it's those who are going to make it into heaven because he paid the ransom for us. And see, that, that's a great message. That's a great way to start uh, our, our look today. And so here is the statement to ponder. Mark highlights two dramatic events which ignite Jesus' public ministry. Two very dramatic events. He doesn't say a lot about them. Other gospel writers say more. I mean, Mark doesn't give us a birth account of Jesus. Luke does because Luke probably sat down with Mary. And Luke not only knew about the birth of Jesus, but he knew about the birth of John the Baptist, and he, baptizer, and he told us about that, right? But Mark didn't do that. He just introduced him, and here, two dramatic events which ignite Jesus' public ministry. The baptism of Jesus, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1, and the temptation of Jesus, the verses 12 and 13. So, we're going to dive in. The baptism of Jesus Christ. And it says in the text, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. We're going to find that's a really good translation. Torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven... You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Whenever you are studying narrative, a basic way to study is to ask the who, what, when, where, those kinds of questions. And so that's how we'll proceed as we look at this text. And we begin when? At that time. Or in those days. And um, it's kind of interesting because Paul said Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of time. God is never late, and God is never early. All right? He's always on schedule. He's always on time. And it was at that time. So I'm trying to picture this, and imagine, okay, Jesus is up in Nazareth, working in his father's carpentry shop, and he gets word, John's preaching. He's 30 years old. He'd been waiting for this day for decades. He knew he came to be the Savior, but he had to wait until John begins his ministry because he's the forerunner. We talked about that last week. So I just imagine, here he is in Nazareth, no more tables, no more complaining customers about the desk or, or the chair or whatever, right? He probably didn't think that, but makes good preaching. Anyway, so um, he hears about it, and he's going to get baptized, And he's going to make his way to be baptized. And we're talking about Jesus and John the Baptizer. They're the key people in the text, in the story. But it's primarily Jesus, God's Son. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, Ixthus, the symbol of the fish. And uh, remember that John had this message, and he said it very plainly, that he was there as a forerunner. And this is his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, which would be the duty of the lowest servant. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John had been waiting to see Jesus. And we can pick up the enthusiasm that um, Jesus is, is eager to see him as well. Now where? From Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Nazareth? Really? It's not even on the map. You can't find it on Google. By the way, why did we give up maps? It's just a whole other question, but another sermon. But Nazareth was so small, so insignificant... It was the home of his parents, his earthly parents. And when he returned from Egypt, they went back to Nazareth. And you remember Nathanael's comment? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? And, and later in the Gospels, when they say he's from Nazareth, they oh no, 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 no. But God had made a promise to Galilee. You can read about it in Isaiah 9.1. That the ministry of Messiah would be primarily in Galilee. And so Jesus makes this journey. Now, many people have been coming out of the city of Jerusalem and Judea in the south and gone to John to be baptized. But Jesus makes a journey all the way from Nazareth. By foot, it's at least 10 days, maybe two weeks to get there. And he has one thought in mind. I'm going to be baptized by John. It's just an amazing little part of the story. Now, so so what happened? He's there to be baptized. Jesus came from Galilee, as we've already read, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Matthew says that um, (laughs) John tried to deter him. You know, you've never done this, but but I have I've tried to deter Jesus that's a, not a smart thing to do and and he was a little nervous so the question arises did John know Jesus this is his cousin did did he know him I don't know but he kind of knew him in that moment didn't he and 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 he didn't he didn't feel worthy to baptize him and and he tried to I mean, I chuckle to say it. He he tried to talk Jesus out of it. Now, I notice also, and and I think this is extremely significant, other people were coming out of the city and confessing their sins, and then they were baptized. There's no confession of sin by Jesus Christ. He doesn't have any sin to confess, personally. Right? So... That's pretty significant as we read the story. And um, as we move along, we read, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, all the Baptists said, Amen. He didn't get sprinkled. He didn't get poured on. He coming up out of the water. (laughs) It was deep. John's baptism was a baptism of immersion. And a unique baptism. And he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove. Now this language Mark is using is very precise and it's really so exciting to read it. Heaven is torn open. Listen, God has been silent for 400 years. They haven't heard from a prophet in 400 years and now heaven's going to speak the Savior's present hallelujah And heaven is torn open. This is so exciting. The only other time John uses that verb Is when he describes what happened to the veil when Jesus Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn apart We get our word schism in English from it. It's a dramatic thing that the heavens are being opened. Isaiah predicted that God would open the heavens in Isaiah 64. And here it's happening. And Jesus Christ and John are witnesses to it. And the Spirit is descending like a dove. Now I don't know whether to think of it as the form of a dove or the fluttering like a dove. I really don't know. So you decide. Okay? But the important thing is, he's being anointed by the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit is going to empower him. Even though he is equally God with the Spirit, he is going to live in submission to the Spirit and the Father to show us how to live. Oh, the Son of God, yeah. And so he's empowered by the Spirit. This is an amazing moment, you know. And then. You know, that's not enough The father just can't hold back Dads, anybody in the room Like just can't help yourself You want to talk about your kids (laughs) Like you want to tell the world The father just can't stop himself He will do the same thing At the transfiguration The mount of transfiguration You know And the father speaks The voice out of heaven It must have been very deep I don't know. I don't know whether it's deep or not, but I know it was the voice of the Father. And what a voice. You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. Yes. Yes. And whom I love and am well pleased. There are a lot of voices in Mark. John, Jesus, demons, people, but this is the Father. His voice is most significant. When I read this, I think of some of the Old Testament prophecies about the father calling his son, son. Psalm 2-7, which was understood by the rabbis to be a messianic psalm. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then... Another favorite of mine is Isaiah, because Isaiah predicted the servant of the Lord coming. And I think Mark had that in mind a lot as he's writing this letter for us, that he's the servant of the Lord predicted by Isaiah. And, and he says some wonderful things about the servant. This is just one example. We could look at others. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Oh. I know it's a bunch of us have Hawaiian shirts on because we're grieving with the people in Maui, aren't we? Just the things that happen in this life. We so yearn for justice. And it's coming because the Messiah will bring it. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Oh, take that one personally. We're all bruised reeds. We're all bent over. (laughs) We've been hit by the winds, but he won't break us off. We're all smoldering wicks. You know, the flame's almost out, but he will not snuff us out. That's the Savior predicted by Isaiah, now being baptized. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth in his Teaching the islands will put their hope which are the little gentile islands in the mediterranean So what isaiah is saying and he'll say at other places this savior didn't just come for israel come for the whole world See and so you are my son. You are my beloved son and with you. I am well pleased So i'm going to ask the question. Why is this so significant? Well, first of all, all the members of the trinity are present. I think that's significant People debate, oh, the Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. I know the Word doesn't appear, but the truth is here. The Son, the Savior, the Father, they're all there. And just like when he commanded, when we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're equals, they're co-equals, they're all God. That's who they are. I don't have the time to go into all the the discussion of that, but the Bible clearly teaches it. And here at the baptism, like other places, you see all three persons of the Godhead. And Jesus fully identifies with sinners, sinners. Did you hear me? He fully identifies. Even though he is not a sinner in any way, he's fully human. And he submits to baptism. He says to fulfill all righteousness. Now if he's doing that, and he did, he's not doing it because of his own sin. He's doing it because he's going to be the sin bearer And so he fully identifies with us as sinners. On your bad days, on my bad days, he still fully is my Savior. He's fully your Savior. This is so very important. It is so very important because I have to ask myself the question, are sinners comfortable in my presence? I'm only a sinner saved by grace. So are you. So what right do I have to look down my nose? I have no right. If the Savior fully identified with us, he came unto his own, and they rejected him, his own received him not, shouldn't we? There's an excellent book that John White wrote. He was both a theologian and a medical doctor. And some of you who are medical doctors will love this story. It appeared in a book he wrote called Excellence in Leadership. When he was in medical school, one of his classes he missed a practicum about venereal disease. And he had to make it up in the clinic. <laughs> when he arrived at the clinic, he ended up in a line with a bunch of patients who had actually contracted a venereal disease white barged up to the front and said to the head nurse i need to see the doctor (laughs) yeah you get it that's what everybody says she snorted at him now get in line (laughs) but i'm a medical student big deal you got it the same way everybody else now you can stand in line like everybody else Then he makes these comments. In the end, I managed to explain to her why I was there, but I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in line with the other men who had a venereal disease. Yet Jesus shunned shame as he went to the cross, and the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the men in the clinic. But he crossed the gulf, joining our ranks, embraced us, and still remained pure. He identified with those he came to save. He became like us. May God help us, not as saviors, because we're not, but as fellow sinners, to be empathetic and compassionate. And there it is. The righteousness of Jesus is now credited to our account. Romans 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's a banking term. Your account, my account before God is bankrupt without Christ. But in Christ, it's paid in full. And it's his righteousness that we celebrate. Not what we've earned, not what we've paid for. Isaiah says it's just like filthy rags, so honestly. But it's his righteousness, and it is perfect. That's the gospel. Jesus fully submissive to the Father and the Holy Spirit. I think we're going to see that in Mark, and it's a very important principle for us. And Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. This is very important because some liberal theologians try to tell you that Jesus was adopted that day. I had a friend in my hometown. He went to his pastor and asked a question about Jesus, and the guy said, Well, any one of us could have been Jesus. My friend very wisely left the church that day. (laughs) It, It doesn't say he became the son. It says he is my son. He always has been my son. He always will be my son. Hallelujah. This is an eternal truth, see? And it's important that we see that because you hear a lot of shenanigans about this. Shenanigans is a nice way to put it. He is uniquely the Son of God. So we learn that from the baptism. Okay, now onto the temptation. Oh, good, it's only two verses. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. Well... Again, we ask the word when, and it's at once. And it happened immediately. Again, the Spirit sent him out. And he was out there for 40 days. If Mark said it's 40 days, I believe it's 40 days. Thank you. Yes. It's not some symbolic number. Moses was 40 days up on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days. There's something about 40 that's significant. And how was he sent out? (laughs) Sent is a nice translation. He was driven out. It's the same verb that's used later in this same chapter of Jesus casting out demons. Demons. Okay? So the Spirit compelled him out into the wilderness. That's strong. Not that Jesus was resisting. It's just that the first step after baptism is to be tempted by the enemy. And it's led by the Spirit. Wow. I thought of the image of the scapegoat. There's Holman... um Holman's picture of the scapegoat. In Leviticus, uh, they took a goat, they laid hands on the head of the live goat and confessed over it their wickedness and rebellion. This is what the priest did, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. They sent him out into the wilderness to say, God's going to separate your sin, He's going to forgive. And when I see Jesus driven out into the wilderness, the same wilderness that the scapegoat went into, it reminds me that he's doing this again as my Savior. Now, where did it happen? It happened, of course, as we've said, in the wilderness. And he was being tempted by Satan. So I'm asking myself the question, what does that mean? And, and the Greek word here is, is uh, peradzo. Peradzo. Now, the word can be used to test God to prove his character. And, of course, we're warned in Scripture not to do that. In fact, even before this text is over, we're going to read something Jesus said about that. When you test God, you're saying, God, are you real? Like, I thought I believed you in the past, but are you real? Can you prove yourself today? Like I heard about a major leaguer who said, I'll believe in you, Lord, if you let me hit a home run. Are you kidding me? You don't test God like that. Okay? Okay. But it also can mean to reveal the true nature and character. So that, in those contexts, and yeah, I've got to look at the context to decide, it means to test. So when God tested Abraham, he knew Abraham better than Abraham knew Abraham. Right? And he tested him with his son, and Abraham passed the test. His faith was evident. It also can mean to tempt, to do evil or sin. And it's used that way in the New Testament. For instance, in James, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me to do evil. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, because Satan is the author, temptation is the best translation. He was sent out into the wilderness not just to be tested, but to be tempted. To do evil. And we know that. Now, (laughs) I think it's very interesting that Mark only includes two details that nobody else tells us about. He says he was out there with wild animals. Wild animals. Not little nice puppy dogs that you bring home. (laughs) Wild animals that are dangerous. Some authors, one commentator says they were his friends. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, Jesus ultimately is going to redeem the animal kingdom, right? The lion's going to lay down with the lamb. You don't do that in a zoo today. That doesn't work very well. But you can do it in that day. But in this case, I think it's just showing how lonely he was. No other human beings around. But the angels show up. Yay! that great? Man, you and I have been lonely. We've been cast aside. We've been feeling like we're out in the wilderness. But don't doubt it. The angels are still aware. And when God says, go help that one, they're there. And the text indicates the ministry of the angels to Jesus Christ wasn't just that day. It continued. And we see it periodically. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it there. And it, ministering angels are here to minister to the saints. That's Hebrews 1.14. Have you had some weird experiences in life? Like you were in trouble, some habit, some guy shows up. You never saw him before, you never see him again. You say, man, was that an angel? I should have asked him. George Bailey did. Anyway, um don't know I mean, i'm just saying that we need to understand there's a spiritual dimension that is as real and even more real than the physical dimension and it's just wonderful to see that our savior himself benefited even as the son of god in the wilderness with the ministry of angels that's really cool i like that i think i'll preach it well the point is that testing and temptations often overlap Often when I'm being tested, I'm being tempted. Often when I'm being tempted, I'm being tested. And I, and, I, and I need to understand there's some commonality. But because I want to be faithful to the story, I'm going to go to Matthew because Matthew gives us the fuller story. But I'm just going to hit some highlights. The first test is a test of pride. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Duh. But he was... But he was hungry because he had been fasting. And and we're going to talk about this before we get through the Gospel of Mark. And fasting is a wonderful discipline. And Jesus was fasting. He was strong spiritually. Just saying. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, I think a better translation is, since you're the Son of God. He wasn't denying that. Tell these stones to become bread. Would have been the best bread ever. So it's a test of pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And the remedy is humility, and Jesus walked in humility. The second test is a test of lies. It's shocking to see that the devil knows how to quote scripture. I don't want to upset you, but the devil knows the Bible better than you and I do. He also knows how to twist it. And that's what he attempted to do here. And and the remedy for lies, of course, is the truth. And you could say Jesus pulled out the sword of the spirit and ran the devil through. The third test, it seems to me, is about impatience. He makes this bold claim that he can offer all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. In other words, don't go to the cross. Don't do all that. I'll just give it to you now. I don't think he had the right to give it. He is the prince of the world, but I don't think he really had the right. And Jesus sees right through it, because he's going to be patient. He's going to be persevering in his faith. He is the servant on the mission, and he's going to accomplish the mission perfectly. Right? So, what is obvious in the text is that Jesus defeated Satan by quoting Scripture. Class? Brothers and sisters, please listen. When the devil comes, or one of his demons, quote scripture. Keep it simple. Walk uprightly. Walk blamelessly. Just quote scripture. And I wanted to put this up here just because I wanted you to see the context. He quotes it perfectly in context. It fits perfectly with his situation. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today. All the quotes, by the way, are out of Deuteronomy. I mean, I'm sure that's your favorite book in the Bible. Well, it should be in some ways, right? It's, it's restating the law. It's preparing them to go into the promised land. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and in increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, wonder bread. Which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you, here it is, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the quote. That's how Jesus rebuked Satan in this crazy idea that because he's hungry, just put your will over the Father's and turn the bread, well, the stones into bread. Could he have done it? Of course. It's a real temptation. Second quote, the second test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There it is. That's, that's what Satan was attempting to do with Jesus. Jump off. See if the angels catch you. But be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that may go well with you and you may Go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. See, that fits perfectly with the context of what Jesus was facing. And finally, the third quote from Deuteronomy. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, that's the quote. Worship the Lord your God. Serve Him only. Take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the, apostles, of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and His anger will burn against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the land. God is zealous for us. He's not jealous against us. He's zealous for us. And so, John writes this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And did He do it? Yes! Perfectly he nullified he took all the bullets of the enemy and made them little rubber darts Oh, they hurt and they sting But they can't kill you Because you're christ And greater is he that lives in you than he that's in the world And so osborne I love his quote when satan tempts us it is meant to destroy our faith our witness our very life But what satan intends for a harm God intends for our good, the testing and strengthening of our faith as we stand firm in the Lord. That's good. Thank you, Grant Osborne. What's the significance? Jesus won a complete victory in the wilderness. Unlike the Israelites who took a vote at Karnish Barnea, Kadesh Barnea, and didn't go into the land like they should have, and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus won a complete victory. It says that Satan left for a season. When the devil had finished all this this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Understand, there will be seasons of temptation. What's true in Jesus' life is true in your life and my life. Now, we'll ask the question and try to answer it quickly. Was this a real temptation? Of course it was. He's fully human. He's fully tempted. He didn't fall. Hallelujah. He passed the test. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, I don't know if you realize that Mere Christianity was written during World War II, and they asked Lewis to do some radio broadcasts to, to encourage the people that were facing war with the Germans. And that's how Mere Christianity was birthed. Well, in the book, he says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. <laughs> A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. (laughs) This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. (laughs) They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse in us until we try to fight it. Jesus fought it successfully. If I'm going to go to somebody to win over temptation, I want to go to somebody who's been successful. I don't want to get together with a bunch of other people that have all failed and just wallow in the misery. Jesus won! (laughs) yes yes he is our sympathetic high priest oh we love Hebrews 4 therefore since we have we have will forever have never lose a great high priest who is ascended into heaven into heaven into heaven right (laughs) right Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Do you believe that? It's it's beneficial to believe it. I don't understand, because I face temptation, I'm thinking, did Jesus get tempted with chocolate? Oh. <laughs> Evidently, I don't even like chocolate. Oh, yes, I do. Um, in every way, just we, yet, he did not sin. That's the glory. Let us then approach God's throne of grace, the throne of grace, the throne where he hands out gifts with confidence, with boldness. We can talk to him about anything and everything so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You are in need. I am in need when I'm being tempted. Man, I am really in need. Because in myself, I lose. I'm going to give in. But with the strength of Jesus Christ, my great high priest, I can find mercy and grace. Hallelujah. I'm getting excited. But that's a good thing. You like that. I like that. This is worth getting excited about. Hallelujah, the baptism, the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. A final word from William Barclay. In this life, it is impossible to escape the assault of temptation. But one thing is sure, temptations are not sent to us to make us fail. They are sent to strengthen the nerve and the sinew of our minds, hearts, and souls. We have and celebrate an all-sufficient Savior. And the look at his baptism and his temptation today have reminded us of just how comprehensive is his ability to save even a sinner like me and like you. Dear Lord, thank you for the reminders today. Thank you that mark sat down and wrote these words for us under the inspiration of the holy spirit of god He was carried along so that what is written is scripture It's not just a historic account. It is scripture And I pray father that you have enabled me by the power of the holy spirit to speak the word of truth in love and in full conviction And in the holy spirit and lord that we would receive it that way as the very word of god And, Father, that you will help us to identify with sinners, to not shy away, to not exclude ourselves, but that they would understand that we understand what being a sinner is. And that's why we love the Savior, and we want them to meet the Savior. And help us, Lord, to win battles over temptation this week. Help us to say no when we should say no. Help us to say yes when we should say yes. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.